Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews, author interviews and book reviews. How are you all doing today? A bin day. I've got a. I've got an issue with this. Where I live, nobody puts their bins out for bin day. Well, the day before bin day, they're all waiting to, because they don't want to be the first person. Everyone's. It's like there's a lot of curtain twitching going on. I don't know. There are no bins out, and I was like, I'm not having this. I am breaking the code. The bin is going out. This is when I'm outside. This is what's happening. So I take my bin out. I come back inside and look out and people are like running down their drives with their bins. I'm I'm a leader. I'm a bin influencer. That's what's happening with me. I just, do people, I suppose I worry as well that well, have I got the right bin? And and then I, I think, well, it is bin day. And I look up and there's no bins out. I'm like, is it bin day? Have I dreamt that? I don't know. It's bin confusion is raining. That's a very squeaky chair I've got. Anyway, bin confusion is raining at the moment. So there we are. A pantomime update. I am recording this with one day to go to the first performance. And it's fair to say the nerves are kicking in. We've had some hilarity in recent rehearsals. Cinderella at the end obviously puts the shoe on and it fits. The trouble was she'd taken off her left shoe and the shoe she was given was the right shoe. So then Cinderella had to pretend to very comfortably uh, move around the stage in this well-fitting shoe while it being on the complete wrong foot and it being quite painful so we've had that sort of fun we've had people just forgetting to go on stage and someone reading out to the audience the pretend audience at that point the contents of a local magazine so yeah I think we're as good as we can be it's so much fun honestly it really is I just love every minute of it and I know I'll be sad when it's over so the next time I talk to you it will be over so you'll get a little bit of me saying how it went and then you will be glad to hear that you won't hear any more panto talk from me for a while so anyway that's enough of me let's talk about these books these amazing books which ones am I talking to you about today well we've got Exiles by Jane Harper we've got This Could Be Everything by Eva Rice uh, The Next to Die by Elliot Sweeney Babel by R.F. Kwang and The Colour of Bee Larkham's Murder by Sarah J. 
Harris. A good selection for you there. There should be something for everyone, but let's get straight into it. Exiles, Jane Harper. Here we go. A mother disappears from a busy festival on a warm spring night. Her baby lies alone in the pram, her mother's possessions surrounding her, waiting for a return which never comes. A year later, Kim Gillespie's absence still casts a long shadow as her friends and loved ones gather to welcome a new addition to the family. Joining the celebrations on a rare break from work is federal investigator Aaron Falk, who begins to suspect that all is not as it seems. As he looks into Kim's case, long-held secrets and resentments begin to come to the fore, secrets that show that her community is not as close as it appears. Falk will have to tread carefully if he is to expose the dark fractures at its heart, but sometimes it takes an outsider to get to the truth. Mm-hmm. Right, let's do first sentence. Do you know, I'm thinking that quite soon I'm going to get the authors to read their first sentences because I think that would be quite good. Not happening today, may happen next week. Who knows? We'll see. It's it's just a whim. Uh, shall I do the prologue? Oh, I know people get wound up when I'm umming and ahhing. No, I'm going to do chat. Oh, I'm going to do both. That's what I'm going to do. No more indecisiveness for Philippa. So chapter one or two. Chapter one, sentence one and two of the prologue. Think back. The signs were there. What were they? They all asked themselves the same questions afterwards. How did it come to this? Could we have stopped it? So that's very good. But I'm said I'm doing the first sentence or sentences of chapter one as well. So we're going to do that. So chapter one, one year later, someone else was already there. There we go. Very good. I mean, my goodness, Jane Harper just writes such incredible books. Her fiction is, they're just splendid crime stories. We've had The Dry, Force of Nature, Lost Man, The Survivors. I just think she's top of the game. And this very interesting sort of Australian feel to it, I just think is first class. But enough about me. Let's talk to Jane now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Jane Harper, whose latest fabulous book is Exiles. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Oh, hi. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? Yeah, sure. So um, Exiles is my fifth uh, fifth novel. It's an Australian mystery like the other ones. Um, this one, though, is the third and final one featuring Aaron Falk, who was the protagonist we first came across in The Dry and then Force of Nature. So he returns for this one um, for the last time. And it's set in um, this sort of beautiful, lush South Australian wine country, which I have to say was an absolute joy to research. <laughs> 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 yes, uh, I would imagine. I need to write a book set in that area. I think, yes, that's right. It was. It was. It wasn't a hardship. I was keeping all my tax receipts very carefully because I thought I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to justify this to some point in the future. So. Brilliant. And how much of the story did you know before you started writing it? So I, um, before I actually literally start writing the actual novel, I know I know everything. Like I'm a huge planner. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would spend, um, I, I, I feel I sort of spend maybe two thirds of the time kind of thinking and planning and maybe a third of the time writing. So it's a lot more, yeah, I would spend way more time kind of planning it out than actually um, 
you know, kind of producing the, the words really. Um, and, and I, you know, I always sort of say to people who are aspiring novelists, I mean, there's so, there's no right way to do it. And, and everybody has a different way. Um, for me though, this is just what works. And, um, I like it because um, by planning everything out to you know, so intensely, um, it, I find it allows me to be more creative because I can test things out without having to commit to 10,000 words or several chapters. I can just sort of, you know, do it in kind of note form and then think, you know, what, I'm not sure about that. And it's, it's not it's not as heartbreaking to delete you know, a few paragraphs that it is to delete whole chapters. So that that's kind of how I came to it. And that's what I find so interesting because people that say they don't plot and they just write, they do, they might delete hundreds of thousands of words. So you've got to put, put the hours in, whether it's at the beginning or at the end, it's the, it's the same time frame of, of process. You're not actually saving time by just going from the, by the seat of your pen. Well, yeah, I actually think, I actually think people who plan and people who don't plan, essentially it is the same process because it's not, you have to, you still have to work out the story. And I think, I find that some authors, I think they, they need to maybe write it out because that actually helps them kind of work through those ideas. And maybe that is just part of what helps them get it on the page. But for me, I, I don't really find I need to do that. I can, I can kind of see whether it works. And I can kind of imagine what that finished scene will look like without having to actually execute it. Um, but at some point, yeah, you have to, you have to solve the problems and you have to work out those awkward corners and, and, and test, you know, things out. Um, so, you know, it just, for me, it's, it's, um, I think it's, I was a journalist for 13 years, like quite a long time in print journalism, working to deadlines. Um, and I think that's maybe is part of it that I, I sort of, I, I don't like to write anything that's not actually going to get used. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I can understand that. So does, if someone comes into your house, do they know when you're in that plotting stage of the book because you've got walls like police rooms with you know pieces of paper and strings linking every piece of paper um, I, I don't they probably can tell because I do probably have a bit of a, a vague far away look about me at all times um when, I, when I'm in that plotting sort of planning stage because I'm, I'm always kind of it's this it's kind of ticking over I find always, like, especially when I'm in that really early sort of thinking stage, I don't really do edit the computer. I, I'm just doing it as I'm going about my day-to-day life. So every now and again, I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, that would be – that's a, that's a good idea. Um, so what I do, I, I actually just make notes. Um, I, I wish I could say I did it with like a quill and a, you know, a, like a beautiful notebook. I don't, I do it on the, the notes app on my phone. Um, and cause, cause it's, I always have my phone with me. I can do it in the middle of the night if, if you know, inspiration strikes and I can, um, and then I can search as well for terms, you know, like if I think, what was that idea about? It's easier to find. Um, and then, but I do write down everything because, in those notes, because I do think, you know, you think I'll never forget that. I will, I will always remember that idea. And then the number of times I go back to those notes and stuff, I can't even remember writing down. Like, that's great. Like, I'm definitely going to use that. Thank you, past self, <laughs> for that good idea. <laughs> yes, because some people, again, say, well, if you forget it, it wasn't a good enough idea. But my goodness, with my memory, no, I, I would definitely need to write any ideas down. Absolutely. And I think if nothing else, it, it, it frees up your mind then to think about something else. You're not having to remember it. It's there. It's, it's waiting for you. You could think about something else. And that's, that's probably a, a big part of it as well. But I'd say the number of times you really, you know, I really have surprised myself. I've been trying to work out problems yeah, in the plot and I've gone back to my notes and I've actually solved it previously and I've forgotten. And it's maybe been in the middle of the night revelation and I've actually just forgotten that I've I've already got a solution there yeah. it's, it's 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 that it's that kind of crucial sometimes so yeah I um 
I'm a big, yeah, I, I, I write, it down, write it all down. That is my, that is probably one of my top tips, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. So with this book, do readers, if for some reason they haven't read your other books, do they have to go back and start at the beginning or can they just read Exiles and just enjoy it and soak it up on its own? So I think, you know, I, I most of my books, I would say you, you the first four, um, I would say you definitely can just pick them up and enjoy them on their own. And that, that was kind of a deliberate choice on my part because I'm, I'm aware that people haven't always read the backlist and there's years elapsed between books. And, and so you can't expect readers to kind of remember um, exactly what's happened and things. They need to sort of stand on their own merits as their own sort of complete novel. Um, Exiles is probably the only one where I'd say, I think you, I think you absolutely can read it on its own, but I think you would probably get a, a richer, you know, maybe enjoyment for having at least read the dry, um, you know, and, and, and a little bit of background about what sort of brought, you know, Aaron Falk to this place. And there's some of the characters we slightly, slightly sort of revisit and, um so that yeah that's the only one yeah fair enough also you could read exiles and then go back and discover it and read exiles again so you get two different um, responses to it as well I guess yeah you probably would get a slightly different perspective if you yeah if you read it once and then went back and had a little bit of the background filled in and then came to it again so it's value for money it's two reads (laughs) absolutely that's it yeah so how do you manage the tension because you just get it to the right level is that something that you are working at as you're doing your extensive plotting or does that just come naturally Oh, thank you. Well, thank you for saying that because, um, I mean, that is, that is a big part of, you know, something I'm thinking about constantly the whole time through. So, yeah. And as an author, I think you, you can never be a hundred percent sure how that, well, that is going to work for the reader. You have to kind of rely on a lot of logic and like, I think this, I, I feel like this is going to work because, you know, if I do X and Y, then the response should be Z in most people, this will be what they will be thinking and feeling at that moment. But, you, you, but cause as you know, I, I know the whole book, you know, and, and everything that's sort of gone into it. So it never kind of works, you know, it never works on me, um, on that emotional level. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I would think about sort of the tension and the pacing and the way to kind of keep ideally the reader engaged. I mean, right from the start, right from the thinking level and all the way through, that is always something I'm constantly, um, just trying to improve it a little bit here and here and here. Like, it's like kind of, turning a cruise ship you know you do lots and lots of tiny tiny improvements and hopefully by the end it's it's moving in the right direction and it feels really kind of steady and you know it's, it's on the right course um but a lot of it is um again for aspiring authors you know it's or, or people just who kind of want how these things are put together it's it's so um it's such a layered process there's no one point where I just go through and say that's it tension is done, tick that box. You're constantly looking for little ways about how to end, end the chapter or start the next one or a little bit more intrigue. So yeah, there's a, a, like a lot goes into it. And was there anything that surprised you in the story as you were writing? And I, I mean, I presume not with the plotting that you do, but were there any surprises for you? Yeah, you know, they do. It does actually um, still sometimes go in slightly directions I hadn't expected. So even having pl- planned it as much as I do, when it does come time to get on the page, there's often things that don't translate as as I thought they would. So a, a really common one is that there's either sort of too much or too little in a chapter. So something that looks in the plan like that is a complete segment. When you actually get to it, it's it's too much of a jump to have them go from place A to place B. You need a little bit of a um, a little bit of an addition showing that journey. 
And in, in turn, that then makes a chapter too long. So then I have to recut it. Or, you know, another thing is sometimes I find that the the main characters are doing too much and they, they, they are sort of carrying too much of the story. And, and I sort of realised that actually if some of the secondary characters maybe are present for this conversation or can add something to what is being revealed to the reader, the secondary characters can do more of the heavy lifting and then I'd go back and slightly rework the plot to, to reflect that. Um, so, yeah, there's always, there's always little things that come up. So was it quite a moment when you finished this book with it being the final one with um, these, this character? Yeah, I mean, it was. And it was, it was it, it, like it was really bittersweet I would say the whole way through but I mean I went into it knowing it was going to be the last book for Fork and I mean the reason I mean people sort of ask you know is it because you're tired of him or you want to move on but it's actually completely the opposite I mean it's because I've you know like I've loved writing about him and he's been with me since book one and you know he's he's really you know um been such a big part of my kind of whole experience as an author but I really feel like you know, in fiction, endings are so important and endings are a big part of my planning process. And so, you know, when I'm thinking about his character, I am also thinking about, you know, where the ending, like I, you know, it's not just, I wanted to give him as a character the, the ending that he deserved and a really solid narrative arc. And, you know, and also be honest, I think with yourself as an author about how long a character can go for. I mean, not every character is built for 20, a 20 book series. Um, some of them, you know, do sort of feel like they need to move on and they need to close off certain, you know, avenues in their life. And so, yeah, so I, but it was, it was good. It was really good as well, because I think knowing it was the last one means you can, you can leave it all on the field. You know, you don't have to save anything for future books. It can be exactly what you want it to be. Um, so it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, and I feel really, I feel really comfortable and happy with that decision. And was that because you've got ideas for for your next book and future books that are very different, or you know, what have you got planned? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't so much that I thought, oh, I've just got so many other ideas that don't involve in, in him. I mean, I've, I've I've written two standalones in between. So my first two books had him in, and then I wrote um, the Lost Man and the Survivors, which are both standalones. Um, so I've kind of done both, you know, a kind of a recurring character and the standalones. And it is a slightly different process in how you approach it. I mean, I think possibly the standalones are more kind of tailored towards my way of creating a story. I mean, I tend to start with the plot first and and really work out exactly what sort of happened and what appears to have happened. And then I build the characters around that and who's going to best tell the story and where are we set, where's it set. And so it sort of builds out from the plot, whereas when you've got a recurring character, the story is built around them and they're at the heart of the story. So it's just a slightly different way of approaching it. And I'm happy kind of doing both, but I don't feel that I need for to generate ideas. Like I know how to generate ideas. And when you've got standalone books, yeah, everything is on the on the table you know you can you can take the reader anywhere with them but your name now is so well known I'm just interested in whether that brings its own pressure pressure it must be a lovely position to be in of course but readers must have very high expectations now of your books you know it's interesting because I think it's hard as an author sometimes to judge I guess how well known you are or not you know in a way because you know a lot of people in my circle kind of knew me and knew the book and and then it, it's hard to sometimes judge how widely that's that knowledge is then spread beyond you know maybe people you come in contact with so and I think the pressure is for me has always been there because I, I put quite a lot of pressure on myself my expectations for the books and the quality and what I want to achieve with them is is probably higher than anybody's you know but I I think I always sort of tend to kind of come back to this the the point which is 
um, where I started with the novels. And that was, I, I just, I wanted to write a book that I would enjoy reading. And that's, that's still what I try and do, you know, everything in terms of the, the plot and the tone and the characters and the, um, you know, the, the topics that are covered and the, the level of, I kind of, I guess, things we see within the novels. They're, they're all things that I feel, you know, are comfortable at my level and, and that I would sort of be happy picking up in a bookshop and taking home and sharing with my family and friends. So that that's sort of my kind of North Star when it comes to what I'm trying to yeah, achieve with each individual novel. I guess we all put pressure on ourselves more than more than other people actually are. But are the characters with these books, do they stay with you after you finish writing them? Whatever happens to the characters, you know, are they chatting away in your head or, or are you as a journalist able to just close the door? They do stay actually for quite a while. Some of them, you know, stay for, for I mean, years really, quite a long time. And I have sort of quite elaborate backstories or I guess future stories for for what happens next to some of them and and you know and what what do they go on to do and and what what sort of relationships do they have and um and some of them they have quite detailed kind of yeah um ideas about what would happen next and I don't know if that's just sort of part of you know spending so long with them and and you know you you when you write it you, you certainly sort of create the backstory and I think part of that backstory almost compels you then to kind of look a little bit further ahead, you know, like as the, if the character hopefully feels sort of authentic, you know, what, what does come next for them? So yeah, it's kind of, kind of fun. It's not something I'd ever, I don't think I'd ever write down these little forward stories, but it's good for me to kind of know, I think. <laughs> so looking at the, the writing process, the publication process, from the day you get your, the idea for the book to the, the day after publication day, which is your favourite day? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Oh, you know what? Let me think. Because there's, there's a few. There's a few different ones. You know, one of my favourite points is when I, I think when you're, I'm sort of planning out the novel and it, it's kind of coming together and then I have kind of a breakthrough idea and it, it and it sort of slots into place and I can see suddenly how that has elevated it and it's opened up doors and it is, it's kind of what I was looking for without maybe knowing exactly what I was looking for. Those are always really good days and it just really gives you my, a whole sort of fresh momentum with the with the novel I find I quite enjoy actually the the copy editing stage which is a bit where I've already done all the hard work like it's already written I've gone through the big structural edit where the editors kind of tell you you know what what they consider is you know maybe could you know do do with some changes and and now you're in, in the copy and I have this, this this great copy editor who was so eagle-eyed and she really adds such great value and I feel during that copy editing process, I could feel the book is just getting a whole kind of it's this absolutely beautifully beautiful facelift, and it's it just comes out so much shiny, more shiny and polished and readable than it was at the start of that. And then you know, I feel like I should say publication day, but I I always find publication day a little bit like emotionally fraught because it's it's like that moment when it's it goes out and you can suddenly see it in the shops and it's sort of like oh my gosh you know it just has to stand on its own merits and it's like I don't know it's like kind of sending your kids off to school or something I guess you like you hope you hope they'll be okay and you've done everything you can and you know it'll be fine but it's still a little bit um yeah it's like letting part of yourself go a little bit yeah it's completely out of your control at that point I guess that's it but there's um there's a lot of good points leading up to and I mean and it is great to see it out there I mean one of also my, my favorite moments is when I see someone kind of in the wild reading the book, you know, like I'm walking through a park and I see someone reading it or I was on, on, um, you know, on tour in a hotel, um, and I saw someone reading it by the pool and things like that. So that's always, 
that's always kind of a really special moment too. Of course. If you could select one moment in your life that made you become an author, what would it be? I would sort of say that I've always wanted to write a book, you know, ever since I was, yeah, as long as I can remember to the point where it quite surprised me as really recently to learn that it's not everybody's secret ambition to write a book. I honestly, there was part of me that genuinely thought that every single person had the same kind of like secret desire. And it was like genuinely eye-opening to think, wow, some people actually just don't want to, you know. Um, But um, I think um, for me, probably the difference between having that kind of vague aspiration and actually, you know, doing it, which took me years and years to get to, lots and lots of kind of just, you know, not exactly false starts but or, or wasted time, but just not knowing how to actually grasp the challenge and and how to even start and the, the the thing that changed for me was when I suddenly realized that you know if I, I couldn't control anything I couldn't control anything beyond just writing the manuscripts I couldn't worry about whether it was going to get published or what would happen next or you know would I get would I get a deal or anything like that all I could do was just try and write a book and I wanted to do that enough that it didn't it stopped mattering if it would get published and um, and I was able to kind of stop letting that hold me back and just think, you know, I'm just going to do it. It's probably not going to go anywhere. Probably nobody else will read it. So I may as well just write a book that I, you know, that I want to write and I'll learn from it and maybe I'll be able to do better next time. But, and, and that book that I wrote with that kind of mindset was the dry and it did get published. So it, it's, it was a huge kind of mental leap for me. That's so interesting. You're not on your own though. The authors I interviewed, the, the time that they decided to write a book for them and not a book that they thought that this is going to work, this is my lottery ticket. That's the one that really propelled them forward. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, and it's it, it sort of advice that we get in different forms for different things. Like, you know, you go to the gym and you have personal trainers like saying, you know, focus on the, the input, not the goal. You know what I mean? Like you, you, you yeah, can just commit to coming true. three times a week or something and and, uh, and the results will follow. And, and you know, and we get we get that advice, yeah, in, in different parts of our life. But um, it took me a really long time to apply that to this thing that I wanted actually more than anything, um, you know, just focus on focus on the inputs and, the results ideally will well maybe they won't look after themselves but at least I've done everything I can to try and get that results that I'm hoping for oh yeah and you're achieving them my goodness now last question and perhaps the most important question on this podcast uh, I need to know what powers your writing what is your biscuit of choice as you're writing <laughs> oh my goodness um so many biscuits um <laughs> so I mean certainly I, I would always have to have a cup of tea with with this bis- with these biscuits or any biscuits in fact so I have a lot of tea when I'm writing um so uh I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Tams um which are kind of an Australian um kind of stable yeah. I think I feel like they're the kind of thing like backpackers kind to carry you know carry <laughs> boxes of and and um get sent home you know to to expats and things from relatives in australia but i mean they're they're always they're always pretty good although they are quite um really i should probably switch to like a lighter biscuit because i probably have you know i'm not sure how many tim tams you can really eat in one go probably lots actually <laughs> yeah. but i should probably go for like like a nice rich tea or something instead <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough but very important to to power through the writing well jane it's just been wonderful to talk to you and hear more about 
how you approach your writing and the plotting you do and how much life you breathe into your characters. So Jane Harper, whose latest book is Exiles, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Coming up, another author interview and more book reviews. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Right, now let's get stuck into the next book. This Could Be Everything by Eva Rice. Listen to this. It's 1990. The Happy Mondays are in the charts. A 15-year-old girl called Kate Moss is on the cover of The Face magazine. And Julia Roberts wears thigh-high boots for a poster of a new movie called Pretty Woman. February Kingdom is 19 years old when she is knocked sideways by a family tragedy. Then one evening in May, she finds an escaped canary in her kitchen and it sparks a glimmer of hope in her. With the help of the bird called Yellow, Feb starts to feel her way out of her own private darkness, just as her aunt embarks on a passionate and all-consuming affair with a married American drama teacher. Let's do the first sentence here. Here we go. Sorry about this. Right. Yellow. Chapter one, Yellow. Yesterday evening, something happened, and I don't like things happening to me. It's why I stay put so that they don't. But when I walked downstairs at eight minutes past eight for a glass of water, I saw a small yellow bird standing on top of a packet of Weetabix in the corner of the kitchen. I thought this was a, a great book. It's about life and loss and grief and 
how your past shapes your future and I love the 90s references the music I just I, yeah it's it's great they they say it's a coming of age story with its roots under the pavements of a pre Richard Curtis era Notting Hill that has all but vanished it's about what happens when you start looking after something more important than you and the hope a yellow bird can bring honestly it's just well joyful is the wrong word because there's so much in it um but it's it's yeah it's a book about life anyway enough about me waffling on let's go and talk to Eva now well it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Eva Rice whose latest fabulous book is called this could be everything Eva welcome Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. Let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this wonderful book? This Could Be Everything is, I guess you would call it a coming-of-age story. Um, it's set in 1990 in Notting Hill in London, and it starts with, with our uh, protagonist, who's called February, at kind of rock bottom for various reasons. We kind of follow her story over the course of a summer, sort of, get to understand what's happened to her and how she's going to make a life herself after everything that's happened to her. And as well as this, we get story ha happening in parallel at the same time, uh, which is the story of her aunt and a sort of, not necessarily a midlife crisis, but something that's happening to her that is quite different to something that's happening to February, but at the same time, there are big similarities. So you get you get the story of the 45-year-old woman as well. <laughs> and it comes with a playlist as well, which I love. Yes, I think, well, I love a playlist. And I think that often, especially books set in the past, it's really can create a kind of another dimension and atmosphere if you have a playlist. And 1990, the music of 1990 was, is a very big part of the book for both the um, protagonist and also for, I just think that the the general vibe. I'm hoping that lots of people who read it will remember the songs, but also there are lots of people who are going to read it who weren't around in 1990 who are going to discover some stuff for the, for the first time, which is really fun. And when you started writing it, were you firm that it was going to start in the 1990s? Was that part of the original concept or did that take some working out? The last few books I've written have all been set in the past, but they've been set in the more distant past, so the 50s and 60s. And this one, I started writing it actually kind of at the beginning of lockdown the first lockdown I had the idea in my head before that but I started writing it then and I thought <laughs> I was I was sort of sitting there thinking god what year would I really like to go back to at this point in time when everything's so weird I thought 1990 felt like such a kind of seminal year although I was actually younger than than February my narrator but I felt like I could really kind of immerse myself in that because I was around at that point in history. I wanted to write something that was that was a real nod to that particular, the culture of that time. I sort of didn't realise what a massive comeback the 90s were going to be making when I, when I did it, which is, which has all been been very nice. But um, 1990 is not Britpop. It's not Tony Blair. It's not grunge. It's before all of that. It, this, this particular year is kind of really coming out of the 80s, which is almost to me more interesting because it's like the kind of, it's a bit like the sort of moment of going, wow, God, that was that was a bit of a ride about the 80s and looking forward as opposed to being right in the middle of it, which is what I like to do. A lot of my books, I set them kind of just before the big kind of cultural bang of the decade, I suppose. Yes, that's very interesting. There's another author I've interviewed, Matson Taylor, who's written The Miseducation oh, yes. of E.V. Epworth, and he talks about the, yes. the, the cusp of the change and you might be in yes. the 60s, but are you actually 
in the, have the 60s really happened, even though the date is saying 1960. Well, that that's the thing. It's so true. And actually, I always think that when, when you go to the theatre and you see a play that's set in, you know, 1963 and, and the set's all kind of decorated to look kind of like the swinging 60s, and you think, actually, mm. that, that room would look like 1955. Yeah. It's, you know, you're coming out of it. Um, and that's something that I've always found really interesting, the kind of thing that leads to these big points that happen. And so I did a lot of listening to the top 40 <laughs> countdown in 1990, which was the most fun thing yes. <laughs> to, to get me in the swing of it. And you start kind of listening to it thinking, oh, gosh, I wonder what is going to be number one, as if it hasn't actually happened and you don't already know. It's, it's quite weird. <laughs> Oh, that's wonderful. So at the end of the year, when Spotify notifies you of your most played songs, there were some interesting ones. Some pretty straight, a lot of Roxette, Erasure. Um, and there's a lot of In Excess because Michael Hutchins comes into it as a real character. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah. When you had the idea, did the book end up reflecting that idea or did it go through several changes? Most times when I write, things go through several changes. This one... I had the idea of the story being kind of kick-started by this canary flying into her kitchen, which happens in the first couple of pages. And that did actually happen to me. So I, I went, when, when I was older than her, when I was maybe 25, and not in 1990, it was more like 2000, 2001, maybe around then. So this was kind of, I'd always thought, gosh, that's a good way to start a story, that a bird appears in your kitchen and it's... It's obviously, it belongs to someone. You have to find out who it belongs to. So I kind of had that idea. But but the path that it took, maybe with the other plots, was not exactly how I imagined it was going to be. I, but I, I'm, I'm quite hard at imagining the end of the story. I, I have to kind of work my way to that point. Oh, interesting. So you're living it as you are writing it. I have an idea and I have a plan in my head, but I'm not great at keeping to plans when I'm writing, which is probably why... I write so much more than I need to write and end up editing something very, very big, which is a bit like going around the houses. But I feel like in a way I have to go around the houses to get back to what I really want to do. So, yeah, it, it's sometimes you can't you get to the end and think, gosh, that's a surprise. I wasn't expecting it to be like that at the end. But yeah. <laughs> do you enjoy the editing process or is it painful? I do. I, I, li I like the edit. I think... I don't know. Do most people say they like the edit? Everyone's different. There are some people that don't mind it and other people that really do mind it. Yeah, I, I think there's always such a sense of relief that you're actually looking back on something you've already done, even if you're taking huge chunks out or even if you're adding stuff. It's just that thing of thinking, well, I've got the piece of clay and it's in a rough shape. And now I can chip away at it and get it to exactly how I want it. It's It's that thing of the blank page, which is which is really scary. There's a friend of mine who's a writer, Thomas Mogford, who had a brilliant book out last year called The Plant Hunter. And he, I always remember him saying something. He did such strong edits that he lived in fear of waking up and just finding nothing more than a flashing cursor on the screen. And that is, that is a big fear with editing that you kind of go, yep, I'm just going to lose that. And I'll lose that. And then you think, oh my God, what if I just chucked away? <laughs> Deleted the whole book. Deleted the whole book. It's all gone. <laughs> and how did you manage the pace of the story and the sort of the revelation? I kind of wanted it to read almost like a, it's, somebody said it read a bit like a kind of live stream panic attack at times, which it does, <laughs> it does at points. And then you get these bits of reflection where I wanted it to go slower when she goes back into her past and her childhood. But for the, for the, for the main drive of the story to be very in the now and maybe slowing down a bit at the end, but 
I wanted it to feel very immediate, like you were feeling all of her anxiety and her excitement and her fear as it was happening, which is quite hard to do structurally because it's it's hard to make that jump from that into a kind of slightly calmer place. And so it's not it's not particularly the reflective bits were kind of good because they sort of ground me back in in her thinking back at something. But when then you suddenly jump back into this kind of quite heavily freighted panicky bit, it's, it was quite hard to do. But I wanted that to be the sort of atmosphere of it. And I'm interested, following on from that, what you want readers to feel as they're reading it. Um, I, I think the people who've read it seem to read it quickly, which I think is how it should be read. As in, it feels like the sort of book that you have to kind of jump on board and then just get on that train and be with her and then get off at the end and kind of go, phew. And actually, my mum, who in the past I don't think has read my books particularly quickly, she sort of, I gave her a proof and she kind of turned up the next day having kind of churned through it almost in 24 hours, kind of going, oh my God, it feels like quite a frantic read in a way but I but I want it to feel full of hope and that you you know you you come to the end of it thinking that you've you've been on this on this kind of quick fire journey but that it's going to be okay at the end yeah yeah gosh yes absolutely I mean you're an accomplished author do you think you could have written this book as your first one or does it stand on the shoulders not in a million years because I just think it's a difficult thing because most people I don't know maybe I'm wrong about this but I feel like most people should have a first novel that they write and then put away in a drawer and it never sees the light of day. I mean, and then, you know, maybe they then write their debut, which is actually not really their debut. It's the kind of it's the kind of result of several attempts. Um, I did I, I did get a, a publishing deal when I was very young uh, because I think at the time people were interested in very young writers who were maybe maybe had interest in other areas as well I was doing music at the time too and I and I kind of for a long time I sort of put away my first book and never wanted to look at it again and then actually recently a couple of people have got in touch with me and said they liked it and it's almost like I've kind of reapproached it you know with some kind of trepidation um and thought actually you know it's all right but I feel like this one this one feels to me much more grown up and much more born of experience um and I'm not saying I have had the exact same experiences as February but it feels like the sort of book I couldn't have written about I couldn't have written this when I was 25 no way even though my narrator is 19 I just I don't think I would have had the life kind of experience that I want that you would need to have to write this also for Anne the 45 year old in the story for her story to feel real and authentic I just I just don't think it would have been possible for me to write it earlier and were you involved with the title of the book and the the design of the cover? <laughs> Probably interfere far too much in the covers. But I feel as though covers are very, uh, you know, you you have a kind of imagined cover in your head when you're writing. And then if somebody presents something to you that isn't right, it can feel like, you know, quite a heavy sigh. But this one we discussed the fact that we wanted it to look slightly kind of vintage and slightly 1919, almost like a kind of overexposed photograph and also have that idea of London with the houses in the background and then the flash of yellow of the canary. So there's a lot to kind of get into that cover, which I think they've done absolutely brilliantly. And also, well, actually the title, I didn't, I didn't come out with the title myself. It was a line from the book. We had a couple of other title ideas, what I did, which I thought weren't quite right. And we kind of went around the houses for a bit and then eventually came out with this line, which as soon as as soon as this line was suggested, I was like, yes, that's the line. That's that's good. 
I was happy with it. I, I kind of, maybe I wanted a shorter title because my titles have always been quite long, but actually this one just works really well. And the point that it comes in the story is kind of a crucial point too. So I think it's, I think it's good. Gosh, yeah, absolutely. I'm just so interested in the process behind it and whether the character stayed with you when you'd finished writing it. Were you bothered by any of them? Oh, completely. I think I think characters... It's so weird because sometimes you write... I was thinking this the other day. Sometimes you write a character that you think you're almost a bit intimidated by or a bit kind of like, oh, gosh, if I met him, would he, would he like me? And I and I thought that quite a lot <laughs> about the character of Plato, who's the singer, kind of aspiring pop star character. And I kind of find myself thinking, do I do I actually like him? What would he be like? And I think if, you, if you're thinking like that about your characters, then that's a really good sign. And also I feel as though they they do feel very real to me in this book. They feel as if I really know them. So saying goodbye to them at the end, I don't feel as if I have said goodbye to them. I feel as if they're really there. And and I think maybe also because it was written about a part of London that, you know, I grew up in and I know very well. When I'm walking around the streets, I'm sort of, I'm remembering the bits of the book that I've written about in certain areas. And that's, that's quite fun, which is an, another reason why it's fun to write fiction that's set in real places and places that people can kind of walk down the street and go, oh, yeah, I remember this scene, which is which is really nice. It's wonderful that you sort of live and breathe your book even after it's finished. What does writing mean to you? Um, oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I think it means it, it feels it, it feels like an escape in many ways. It also feels like a terrible trauma because I find it hard. And I'm always quite mistrustful of people who say, that, you know, the writing just sort of flows out of them and it's all very easy because it's not. It's an absolute, it can be absolutely awful. But uh, I think if it's, if you're a writer, you sort of know you're a writer from square one, whether you've published, you know, five million copies or 10, you just feel as though it's something you have to do. And that's not to say it in a sort of smug way, but just because it's just something that's in you. And you're fascinated by everything around it from a very young age, I think. You know, you're you're fascinated by the feel of a pencil. You're fascinated by learning how to do joined up writing. You're fascinated by the feeling of a keypad under your hands when you're typing. I think that just the whole package becomes something quite romantic and essential and something that you know is in you and it's part of your actual being. So that, in fact, when it is difficult... It's really horrible because you feel like, hang on, this is a bit of me. Why can't I access it anymore? Um, which is which is the worst part of it. But um, words and writing, I think if they're in you, they're just always in you. It's why maybe when people say, you know, the, the classic response to I'm writing a novel, someone sits next to you and goes, oh, I'm writing a novel is, oh, neither am I. Because so many people never get to the end of their books. And you just want to say, just finish a draft, even if it's awful, and then then you can edit it, then you can look at it. That's what I mean about like kind of getting the block of clay and being able to chip away at it. But I think the most sort of terrorizing thing to have in your head is a kind of unfinished book. So just getting to the end, whatever state it's in, whether you're going to bin it or whether it's going to be published is is a great thing. That's wonderful. Well, Eva, we come to the final question, which is probably the most important question you're ever going to be asked and certainly one that's important for this podcast. What is your biscuit of choice? What is powering the writing of This Could Be Everything? 
Okay, I'm going to say something that everyone is going to think is just, I bet this biscuit has never been chosen. A blue ribbon. Oh my goodness, that's very going back, very nice. Is. I know, I know. But the thing is, people mock them because, you know, they're very abstemious. They're, there's not much going on in a blue ribbon. But they feel right for a writer. They feel like I'm going to give you a little bit of something and you're going to have a tiny bit of chocolate and a little bit of wafer and it's going to be a bit dry and a bit sort of Presbyterian. But that's going to get you through the next bit. You can't go rewarding yourself with a Ben's cookie the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, come on. Let's not do that. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, Eva Rice, whose latest book is This Could Be Everything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Philippa. <laughs> Very good. Now we've got three more books to review. And honestly, you need to hear about these. You really do. So the next one is called The Next to Die by Elliot Sweeney. And when I read the blurb of this, I was just so intrigued to read it and find out more of the story. Listen to this. A young man jumped in front of a train. Everyone said it was suicide. But Dylan Casper knows different because he tried to send Casper a message. And because this has all happened before to him and his dead daughter, but the police won't take the case seriously, so he'll have to go it alone, otherwise someone will be next. Can he stay alive long enough to bring those responsible to justice? Mm -hmm. Let's do the first sentence prologue. It was a black day. I'd had a good run of late, but got them sometimes. Still do. It's a very convincing story. It's very well written. Yes, it touches subjects that some people might find very uncomfortable. Um, but I thought the characters were so believable and, you know, you, you know who you're rooting for. And it's sort of a, a crime sort of thriller, but dealt with in a different way to some of the standard ones. I thought it was very good. And if this is a debut, which I believe it is, my goodness, what's going to come next? It was um, a book I did not want to put down and a book I just wanted to keep reading until I had reached the end. And then really I wanted to go back and relive it. So it was excellent. Very, very good. The Next to Die, Elliot Sweeney. Now we come on to this one, Babel, or as I thought it was, Babel. But no, everyone's saying it's Babel by R.F. Quang. This is a big book, 546 pages long. And let's just remind ourselves that Philippa says she never does fantasy books. Thank you very much. Well, she's reading it. I mean, I read recently Legends and Lattes, which is like a cosy fantasy and love that one. So I was thinking, well, is Philippa, is the lady changing? Are things happening? Could she like the odd fantasy book? Don't worry. This isn't going to be a every book is fantasy podcast. But there's another one that I'm in the middle of right now, which I hope to review next week for you let me let me do the blurb and approach it in the usual way and then i'll tell you more about my thoughts oxford 1836 the city of dreaming spires it is the center of all knowledge and progress in the world and at its heart is babel oxford university's prestigious royal institute of translation the tower from which all the power of the empire flows orphaned in canton and brought to england by a mysterious guardian robin swift thought babel a paradise until it became a prison but can a student stand against an empire right first sentence chapter one 
By the time Professor Richard Lovell found his way through Canton's narrow alleys to the faded address in his diary, the boy was the only one in the house left alive. So as I say, I'm not really one for a fantasy, but I just thought, well, let's go for it. I was hearing a lot of things about this book, some controversy, which I really didn't quite understand. Most people absolutely loving it. And then I saw Lauren from Lauren and the Books started on it and loved it. I was like, right, this has got to happen. I've got to read this book. I'm fear of missing out. I needed to know what was going on with this story. Wow. I loved it. It made me happy, sad, angry, appalled, cross. It's such an interesting, relevant, amazing book. I thought it was brilliantly done and whether uh, whether you are a fan of fantasy or not I think you would enjoy it there's so much to it and it covers themes that need to be covered and it does it in a very very good way I won't say any more about that but I thought it was very very good and the final book this is one I've had on my shelves for well it feels like forever it must be quite a while let's see what's the publication date of this book uh, if I could find it I would tell you 2018 so I read some of it and it was also on the library audiobook app so I listened to some of it as well and okay let's do the blurb first come on Philippa there are three things you need to know about Jasper one he sees the world completely differently two he can't recognize faces not even his own three he is the only witness to the murder of his neighbor B. Larkham. But uncovering the truth about what happened that night will change his world forever. Okay, let's do chapter one. Tuesday, bottle green, afternoon. B. Larkham's murder was ice blue crystals with glittery edges and jagged silver icicles. That's what I told the first officer we met at the police station before Dad could stop me. I wanted to confess and get it over and done with, but he can't have understood what I said, or he forgot to pass on the message to his colleague, who's interviewing me now. So, uh, the, the, I have issues with this book. It's very good. It's very interesting. The portrayal of it is good. I know someone who sees things as colours, so I was completely up for that. And I I believe Stephen Fry has the same condition that he doesn't recognise people's faces. And reading the book and listening to the book, it made me realise how difficult that actually is and how people expect you to be able to recognise them and how you look for other other things like the, the colour of clothes that they're wearing or earrings or that sort of thing. I just thought that was very interesting. But there was a part of me that felt like we were supposed to be laughing at Jasper and I didn't want to laugh at him I wanted to celebrate him and enjoy him and so I just felt a little bit uncomfortable but I do think it was just me being uh, overly sensitive because so many people rave about this book so I'm sure it's just me please let me know if you've read it if you've listened to it I thought the concept was brilliant and the writing was great. I just, maybe it was the way the audiobook was narrated. Maybe that was making me feel I should be laughing at Jasper and I didn't want to. So I don't know. I don't know. There's the book review for you. The, the, the level of detail you get from me, I don't know. I felt uncomfortable. I'm not sure other people would. 
it was a good book otherwise, apart from the fact it made me feel uncomfortable. It was a great book. There we go. I've waffled. We need to end this. So what books have I covered today? I've covered Exiles by Jane Harper. I've covered This Could Be Everything by Eva Rice. Uh, the Next to Die by Elliot Sweeney. Babel by R.F. Quang. And The Colour of B. Markham's Murder by Sarah J. Harris. Those are your books this week. I've got some great books to talk to you about next week. Honestly, some really interesting author interviews. Yeah, can't wait for that. And we've not had anybody call in this week. Everyone's got too scared to do it this week. So if you fancy calling in, you, the link will be in the show notes and it's on the Facebook group as well. You'd be ever so welcome. But those are your books. I just hope all is well with you and that you're having a good week. And if not, I hope I hope the week gets better and uh, just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. WarbyParker.com slash covered. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.